Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hey guys, it's Albert. We're going to break down everything Super Bowl 54 on this week's show. The Niners, the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Shanahan. Andy Reid, we got you covered here. And then we'll bring in a special guest to break down how the two quarterbacks played on Sunday. And then, as always, we wrap things up with all of your mail in the six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. It's the MMQB Podcast with Albert Breer. Super Bowl 54 is in the books. The 2019 season is in the books. We're going to break it all down here. We're going to have a special guest come in, fantastic guest, one of my favorites, to talk about the quarterbacks in the Super Bowl and the job that both those guys did. We're going to get to all your questions in the mailbag, but we're going to start, as we always do, with our takeaways. And my number one takeaway for this week, what we saw from Patrick Mahomes, I believe, may have been his most impressive performance as a pro. Let me repeat that. Most impressive performance as a pro. Obviously, this wasn't his most statistically impressive performance. It wasn't his most aesthetically impressive performance. But what we saw from Patrick Mahomes on Sunday was a quality that very few quarterbacks have, which is everything was going wrong from him. Everything physically, mentally, everything was the, the, the world was crashing down on him. 
He had been mentally beaten, I believe, in several spots by Robert Sal on that San Francisco defense. He had been physically beaten down by that defensive line, and he was able to put his foot in the ground and get things going in the other direction. And it's a quality I think I first saw from him in 2018. And you might remember they got off to the flying start in 2018. Uh, Mahomes was the talk of the league in September of that year. They run off five straight wins to start the season. Like He looked like completely unstoppable. And then they go to Foxborough for a Sunday night game. This is in October. And... We'd seen all of it. We'd seen the impossible arm angles. We'd seen the no-look throws. Every single thing you wanted to see from him, it was there through the first five weeks. Well, they go into Foxborough, huge game, and this is the sort of game that can determine where playoff games are played. And the Chiefs come in at 5-0, and and right away, right away, Bill Belichick gets to him. The Patriots' defense gets to him. He throws two picks. The Chiefs fall behind 24-9. And now all of a sudden he's going into the locker room against that coach in that stadium with that quarterback on the other sideline on Sunday night football. And really that's the sort of spot where I think a lot of other young quarterbacks, things would go from bad to worse. Things would continue to unravel. Things would continue to come apart on him. And that night, instead of things coming up on a, apart on him, he went down, he went down, or we went into the locker room down 15 points. He kept swinging. He kept swinging. And by the end, the game was tied at 40. He'd thrown for four touchdowns in the second half. The last time he left the field, um, he wound up tying the game at 40. Now Brady led the Patriots back down the field to kick the game-winning field goal at the end of the game. But that night we saw something in him. That night we saw his ability to compartmentalize something bad and turn it into something good. And we saw it again in the AFC Championship game um, last year when they lost to the Patriots. Again, he left the field with the lead. And, you know, we've seen this again and again and again. And 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 now what I what I what the difference is this time around is this time around he's actually got a defense that can make some stops. Last year he didn't have that. But for him to do what he did, and this to me was the most impressive stat, for him to do what he did on, on that on the Super Bowl stage against the Niners defense with Nick Bosa completely destroying Eric Fisher on a down-to-down basis with DeForest Buckner showing an ability to take over the game from the interior. Just beyond impressive. And this is, again, this is the stat right here. Over the first 15 minutes of the Super Bowl, he had a 49.8 passer rating and the Chiefs had scored 10 points. Over the last 10 minutes of the Super Bowl, he had a 130.1 rating, and the Chiefs scored 21 points. That is absolutely incredible. And so, to me, Mahomes, again, not his most aesthetically pleasing performance, not his most statistically impressive performance, but what we saw on Sunday, that ability to stick your foot in the ground and go in the other direction, I think it's rare. In fact, the only guy I can think of that's like that, that's shown their ability to do that consistently is Tom Brady. The Chiefs are in good shape for a long time to come in the court at the quarterback position. I don't care what it takes to 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 pay to to sign him. You do whatever it takes to 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 sign him to a long term contract. And now I think the Chiefs are in the hunt on a year to year basis because of who their quarterback is, which 
again, doesn't isn't breaking news or anything like that, but it's like I thought what we saw on Sunday night was super duper impressive from Patrick Mahomes. Takeaway number two, I, I think the thing that struck me about the aftermath of the Super Bowl was how, and even even some of the run-up, was how this became about Andy Reid for so many people. And I'm talking not just the guys in that staff, guys like Eric Bieniemy and Steve Spagnuolo, guys who were really saw their careers advance because of Andy Reid um, that work for him now. It's also guys who used to work for him, guys like Ron Rivera, guys like John Harbaugh, guys like Sean McDermott, guys like Matt Nagy, like the, the happiness that they all felt, Doug Peterson, the happiness that they all felt f- for Andy Reid. And you can see it in some of his ex-players. You can see it in the guys in the locker room now. So many people wanted to get that for Andy Reid. Now, I always think the way that you you judge people, what do other people think of them? Um, what do, and, and do other people respect them? And do other people look at them and say, you know, that that's a guy who's successful, but he also does right by people. And Andy Reid isn't getting this level of love right now if he didn't do right by a lot of people. And, you know, there are even people who, you know, he had to make tough decisions on. Donovan McNabb's one. McNabb's somebody who holds him in the highest regard. And that was after Donovan McNabb was traded out of Philadelphia. So, uh, you know, Sean McDermott's another one. There was a, you know, they sort of had a tough breakup there in Philly, Sean and, and Andy and Andy did. And you still had a strong relationship after that. And so um, it's hard not to be happy for Andy Reid coming out of this because, so many other people are happy for him. And this most certainly, and maybe it shouldn't, but this most certainly changes the way that you look at Andy Reid going forward. Um, it erases some of the game management questions we had. I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't exist anymore, but it's a little harder to criticize him for that after the way they handled the end of the Super Bowl. Um, it er- certainly erases the big game stuff that you'd heard. Uh, and so, you know, to me, this puts him on a different level as a coach. And I think now it makes him a legitimate, you know, candidate to go to one day go into Canton. Takeaway number three, I think if you're going to criticize Kyle Shanahan for anything, I don't think it's the end of the first half. I, I actually think it's the end of the game. And here's what, here, here's what I mean. I don't think that there's, I don't look at the end of the first half as being that big of a, like I don't, I don't look at what he's doing as being what he the way he handled the end of the first half as that being that out of bounds. Um, their game plan going in, and you could see it from the start, was to bleed the clock and limit possessions and make sure that the Chiefs' offense had the ball less than ten times over the course of the entire game, and they were achieving that early on. But you saw it in the way they bled the play clock consistently early in the game. You saw it in the way that they sort of played a slow down game on offense. And so they were trying to turn this into a nip and tuck street fight and they were successful doing it for 50 minutes. And the idea of what they did at the end of the first half was part and parcel to all of that. It was, let's see if we can run the ball a couple times and pick up a first down. And if we pick up a first down, then we go. So we're going to give our offense the opportunity to earn the chance to go down the field. But if they, but, but if they don't do it, we don't want to give Patrick Mahomes 80 seconds, 90 seconds, 100 seconds to go right down the field because we know he can do that. And if he does that at the end of the first half, it changes the complexion of everything. So you can argue about what that means about his, what, what that says about his quarterback. You can argue what that says about his confidence and his defense's ability to stop Patrick Mahomes. 
I just tell you that was part and parcel to everything that they were doing. Now, at the end of the game, there were definitely spots where they were throwing it too much and getting away from who they were. And that part, I think, you can certainly criticize him for. I think, you know, Jimmy didn't play well at the end of the game. I also think that they sort of got away from the running game a little bit too much late when they didn't have to. And so if there's fair criticism of Kyle, I think that's where it is, at the end of the game, not at the end of the first half. He'll bounce back. Again, I think he's a top five head coach in the NFL right now. I think he's smart enough. He's going to continue to get better. I don't think he's so stubborn that he won't change certain things to – he won't. I don't think he'll change things – I don't think he's so so stubborn that he won't change some things based on what happened in this game. Um, I think the Niners have a very good shot based on how their roster is set up to be back here again sometime soon. Tough to get back, but I think they've got an awfully good shot to to get back to the to that stage again soon. Takeaway number four, we're going to go away from the Super Bowl now. The Jacksonville Jaguars announced on Tuesday that they are going to be holding two home games outside of the U.S., at Wembley Stadium in London. So what does this mean? All right, I'm going to give you three things that I believe that it means. Number one, whether it's the Jaguars or someone else, the league is doing everything that it can to test the market in London. And so one of the things that they did to test the market in London and whether or not it's ready for a team is to send a team over there consistently to see if the fan base would take to the team, see if if they were able to build a base of fans who'd be loyal to a team rather than just showing up to watch a game. So this takes that to another level. Now you're sending that team over there twice a year. Can the team build a fan base over there? It's going to be interesting to see that part of it because I think that's part of why the league would sign off on something like this. Takeaway number two, Jacksonville just hasn't grown the way that the league thought it would. Um, When the league went into Charlotte and Jacksonville in the mid-90s, the idea was these were growing markets in the southeast. Um, and it was part of why the, the, you know, the Houston Oilers saw Nashville as an attractive place. And so you had the, these teams going into these small to mid-sized markets in the Southeast, in Nashville, in Charlotte, in Jacksonville, the idea being these are going to be the next versions of Atlanta and to Na- Nashville. It certainly has happened, um, in Charlotte. It, I think it's happened to a degree, in Jacksonville, it just hasn't happened. And that's the elephant in the couch. That's what a lot of people aren't talking about is that these the the markets that the league saw as growing markets that the league had hoped would be versions of Atlanta as far as how they expanded. Um, it just it's it's happened in two of those markets and it hasn't in another. I think the league is great to be in Nashville. The league is great to be in Charlotte. Those are, those are really good markets. Those are places that I think will continue to grow. And just for one reason or another, it hasn't happened in Jacksonville. And then the third thing, I do think that the league views Shad Khan as the ideal owner to have a team overseas eventually full-time if it happens. Now, the NFL's initial goal was to have a team in London within 15 years of kicking off the international series, they kicked off the international series in 2007. We are now two years away from where they were um, as far as wanting to have a team in London. Is it going to happen? I don't know. The logistical challenges are certainly tough. I, I, you know, and, and really more so than this being about finding a way to manage the regular season. It's about playoffs too. It's about one-off situations where, what happens if you know Seattle has to play London, um, and maybe that's a bad example. If we're going to use 
the Jaguars and the AFC team. What if the Chargers have to play London in the first round of the playoffs? That's Is that fair for those teams, whether it's one team or the other going forward? Uh, is it fair for those teams to have to travel what would be, I believe, I don't know the total travel time, but I think a 12-hour flight. Um, one way, a 12-hour flight, the other way. Would that mess with competitive balance? There's that issue. Um, you know, there's there's some other related issues to logistics. I do believe that they would have probably a home base somewhere on the East Coast, probably in Atlanta. Um, you know, but there, there are all these issues that they're going to have to work through logistically. But I do think that that, that, that because you got the desire to go there, they have it has gone through their head. Who would we want to have that would have a knowledge of how to work in an international market? And I think Shad Khan is perfect for that. And so, again, I don't know whether or not they're going to wind up putting the Jaguars over there. I certainly think that that, exi- that, that that interest exists. I think the league has an interest in putting a team over there in London. The logistical issues may be too much to bear. Um, you know, but who, hey, who knows? I mean, maybe this winds up being a shared franchise. It sounds crazy, but we're halfway there. They've got two games over there now. If they did four and four, like, would that work? Would that erode the fan loyalty in, in, in Jacksonville? Would that be enough to sell London? There are a lot of questions there, but I know that this is something that they're certainly, they're, they're, they've been workshopping for quite some time. And that's basically because they see a market over there that where there's, I mean, there's scale, there's so many people. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it'd be a big market. It'd be the, I believe the second biggest market in the league behind New York. There's a lot of money there and that's a huge part of it. And so, um, I certainly think that there are a bunch of owners that see the idea of going London, going to London and having a team over in London and being the first North American league to have a team over in London as part of their legacy. I think they, they all feel like there's a lot of money to be made there. It'll be interesting to see if it happens. Takeaway number five, before we get to our guest, we've got a bonkers six or seven weeks ahead of us and really a crazy quarterback off season to, in general ahead. So here are five teams that have major moving parts at the position right now. The Buccaneers got to make a decision on whether or not to tag Jameis. The Titans have to make a decision on whether or not to tag Ryan Tannehill. The Patriots, of course, do not have Tom Brady under contract for 2020. The Saints are waiting for for a decision from Drew Brees. Taysom Hill's a restricted free agent. And then the Chargers have to make a decision on whether or not to tag Phillip Rivers. One way or the, uh, one way or the other, we're going to know before March 10th whether those franchise tags have been used, um, whether the Bucks, the Titans, or the Chargers have used their tags. If those teams use tags on quarterbacks, well, then things maybe are a little quieter than we expected. If none of those guys are tagged, look out. Um, it could We could have maybe a historic level of veteran quarterback movement and then on top of that, on top of that, you're going to have a draft that's got Joe Burrow, fantastic one year, but really kind of like a one-year guy. Did start for two years at LSU, but a one-year guy. You got Tua with the injury. You got Justin Herbert, who's been inconsistent. And you got a layer of quarterbacks beyond that, Jacob Eason, Jake Fromm, Jordan Love, that all have their strengths and weaknesses. Just sort of this fascinating game of musical chairs coming at the quarterback position. We're going to have all of that covered for you at the MMQB, and I can't wait for that. And we're going to get to our special guest right after this.
All right, well, the Super Bowl in the books. Um, I wanted to bring in somebody who I thought could bring us some perspective to, on everything that based, that happened in the game. And um, we're going to bring in ESPN's Dan Orlovsky because, honestly, I think what was some of the most interesting stuff that we saw on Sunday related directly to the quarterbacks and kind of where they exist. Dan, welcome in. Going on, bud. Good to be with you, man. All right, so let's start here. I, I, I thought, to me, maybe the most important – maybe the most – impressive thing um, about what we saw from from Mahomes on Sunday was that it wasn't perfect, right? And I feel like it's so rare that you see a quarterback play like he did for the first, let's say, 50 minutes of the game where it looks like he's a little shaken. He's getting the crap knocked out of him. And just about everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And he's able to kind of stick his foot in the ground, turn around, and get things going in a completely different direction over the last 10 minutes. And I, I just, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because I think having played the position, you've probably got some perspective on how hard that is to do. Um, and I really feel like maybe the only person we've seen do that on that sort of stage is Tom Brady. So just that part of it, like how impressive was it for you to watch that? Watch Mahomes play maybe his worst game as a pro over the first 48, 49, 50 minutes, and then be able to sort of, figuratively stick his foot in the ground and, and, and turn things around. Yeah, Albert, to me, that's why I agree with you. That's why I said it was his best performance as a pro. It was not his best game. It was not his most dominant game. But what's happened was we've never seen that version of Patrick Mahomes. In his 30-plus starts, we've never seen him have a bad game. And so he's having this bad game, and we've all come to love the talent that Patrick Mahomes is. And, and a lot of it is the physical talent and the arm, and the ability to move, and the different kinds of throws. And I've long, since really early of the, the 18th season, I've long said, like, this kid's mental capacity is just as impressive as his physical talent. Now, when I was talking about that, it was often about understanding coverages or how to look people off or where, realizing where the pressure is or the drifting of, of, of where he drifts will affect the, affect the defense. But we saw this another level of the mental capacity where, you know, it's the rare ability as an athlete to have the delete button. And listen, not all really good to great athletes have this is delete button where no matter what has happened previous to a certain point, I've got to figure out a way. And it doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter if I've been really good and it doesn't matter if I've been really bad, really bad. I have to have the delete button that Okay, my feet are here right now, and the situation is this. What needs to happen? And we've never seen him need that, but, we've again, we've never seen him, you know, have the ability to, to have it and for him to play that poorly. And, listen, when you're a quarterback, you have days, and really I would imagine an athlete in any capacity, you have days where you're like, man, everything's going in. Like, you can make any throw. Basketball players, it, I, the, the rim is 10 feet wide. Baseball players, I'm seeing the spin of the ball so well, like, you have days where you just cannot, cannot miss. And he was having one of those days where nothing was going right. You just you don't feel good. You're not throwing the ball well. You're not seeing things the right way. You just have no confidence in your game. And then all of a sudden, you, you figure out a way mentally to get locked in and go, all right, here's the play, and i got to go make this play. And once that play happens, you go, I'm back. I'm good. I'm centered. It's the, it's the Kevin Costner clear the mechanism ability. And – for him to show that, to me, it was his best performance of, as a pro. How does the physical beating he took 
play into that too. Because I'd assume, you know, and, and I think that this is sort of like like defensive players' mentality is always like if we get to him enough, eventually we're going to screw him up. Like his clock's going to be screwed up. He's going to get rid of the ball a little faster. He's going to doubt what he's looking at. Um, now, like how does the physical beating for a quarterback, how does the physical beating that he took kind of play into that? Like where – you know, Bosa's getting to him. Bosa's having his way with Fisher. DeForest Buckner, really impressive first three quarters. You know, and this is one of the best defense defenses in football to begin with. Like, how do, how does how hard is it for a quarterback to sort of overcome taking the sort of hits he was taking early in the game too? Yeah, I mean, there's the physical toll, and the physical toll then spins off into the mental toll. The physical toll is just like. All right, you know, I'm starting to get beat up. I'm starting to get hit a little bit. And now, listen, this is not, this is not 20 years ago. This is not Eli in the NFC Championship game against the 49ers. But he was getting beat up pretty good by some pretty good players. But then you start, and this, and to be honest with you, I sent this tweet out during the game. I've never seen Mahomes feel the rush when it's not there. And he started to show some of that where because of that physical beating that he was taking and getting beat up, you know, he started to feel pressure and not follow through on some throws and not finish and drive some throws. And you go, man, the rush is, is, is having an impact, whether it gets there or not. And that's, again, another example of being more impressive is that bomb to Tyreek Hill, you know, he kind of takes the, he takes the rush and puts it in his own hands and just decides to go back 11 steps. And I'm going to avoid this rush no matter what. And so um, it, it is a constant challenge mentally to, and the, the greatest thing is this when you're getting beat up like that and and and, and having failure every play starts to matter more and more because time is of the essence and we're losing and i'm not playing well and okay, i'm gonna hit again i'm gonna hit again and at some point you just go screw it i'm gonna get hit again and it doesn't matter i'm either gonna get hit or not gonna get hit but i'm gonna i'm going to stand in there and act like it's not there and that is a a big time mental test and challenge to be able to, to kind of get your brain to that point of, you know, realizing it's going to happen and it, it's not going to affect me. So did you see him like rebound then? Like, and, and maybe it was the throw to Tyreek for 44 yards in the fourth quarter, but like you said, there was a point where he started to, you could see him feeling the rush when it wasn't there. Was there a point where that went away then later in the game? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So, to me, it's the third quarter. It's second and seven, and they're on their own, I think, around 20-yard line. They run a play-action pass, and he scoots up in the pocket to his left, and no one's open downfield, and he decides to run, and he runs and gets the first down. And then the next play is a drop-back pass, and Bosa grabs him. Bosa comes around his left side. Bosa reaches out with his right arm, and he grabs the right shoulder of Mahomes. And Mahomes just, like, shrugs it off, like upper body shrugs, twists and torques his upper body, shrugs it off of him, and he gets the completion to Kelsey. And, you know, in that moment, I kind of thought of it like, okay, he got away from that one. And as the game went on and, and Sunday night came and then Monday morning, to me, that's when I said that was the takeover. And that leads to the big 44-yard completion to Tyreek Hill. But when he shrugs off both in that moment, in my mind, that goes, that's when Mahomes like kind of took that that game over, took the rush over was the scramble, and then the shrug off of both the completion of Kelsey. That was the first time that um, I, I said like, all right, that that was the turning point when the when it came to the rush and Patrick Mahomes. Like he's back, right? Like so you saw, okay, he's back. 
Um, well, let's go to the 44-yarder then because I thought what was interesting about it, and I had a couple guys kind of explain to me what happened in the play, um, how they set it up, how you know earlier in the game they were sort of out of the same look. Tyreek runs a post, carries Jimmy Ward with him. And on this play, you know, Tyreek kind of took two false steps inside. Jimmy Ward went with him, took a couple steps that way. Mahomes saw it, knew he knew he had him, and then you know he's you know running to the corner, and Mahomes is basically throwing it to a spot. Um, what was so interesting about that to me, Dan, was all right, like clearly in front of him, Nick Bosa had beaten Eric Fisher. Now Eric Fisher probably held him a little bit, but he had beaten him. DeForest Buckner is coming around the back and actually winds up taking him down as he's throwing the ball. Um, how impressive is it that he's able to keep his eyes downfield as all that's going on around him? You know, when we're talking about the rush, because I, you know, I'm assuming that like, you know, you have to be pretty focused to, okay, like I see the safety took those two steps, boom, the ball's gone when all of that's going on around you. Yeah. And this is, this plays a perfect example of why, you know, a lot of people will use this phrase when it comes to quarterback play. You can't predetermine where you're going to throw the football. And I've long thought that's a bunch of baloney. And so that play is the perfect example. And I'll go back to this. He takes the snap from the 35-yard line, standing on the 30, and he drops back 14 yards in the pocket. He takes an 11-step drop. Without, like, this is not immediate pressure. You know, Fisher washes Bosa down a little bit, but this was not like, you know, a, a jailbreak when no one's getting blocked. He was purposely taking that drop, understanding i got to give Tyreek Hill time downfield to press Jimmy Ward at the safety position. And so he takes that drop on purpose. The second thing is him just understanding the likelihood of the cornerback being able to process all that stuff, Emmanuel Mosey being able to process everything and seeing number two and number three, Kelsey and Hill, go towards the middle of the field, those crossers, and seeing the 15-yard in route on third and 15, the likelihood of the corner being able to process all that was as, as minimal as possible. And so Mahomes was throwing that corner out no matter what, really, unless it was a disaster. And that's why, like, his awareness of, okay, I, I, I know this is the play, and I know this is the coverage, and here's the situation. I got I to gotta do some stuff. Gary Kubiak said this to me one time in, in a game when I didn't execute a play. I didn't go above the X's and O's and the coaching of the play. And he said, listen, man, at some point, you just got to figure out a way to make the play work. And I didn't have that ability. And Patrick Mahomes just at some point in that, in that game, in that play, he just goes, all right, I got to figure out a way to make this play work in this moment. And uh, it was special. It was where it was the third and 15 that we are going to talk about for a long time, rightfully so. And so you think that's in his head then that like, okay, like taking the 11 step drop in his head is like, like, I know I need to create space for myself and time for myself. And I guess part of it, too, would be that was a difficult throw, right? Like, so you also have to be the you also have to have the physical ability to do that, like knowing, OK, I can cash that check. There's no doubt about it that he dropped on purpose. He, that, that, that was not a mistake. He dropped on purpose and he knows, you know, again, the likelihood of that corner being able to fall off is so small. And he, he can throw the ball 60 yards downfield off his back foot, essentially. Okay, so when you look at the totality of it and, and being able to do that three times in the playoffs and, and what he did against the Texans and, you know, what he did in, in making it happen against the Titans, you know, and, and the, obviously the big touchdown run there, um, 
what like what's most impressive about what Mahomes has been able to do over the last month? Um, because I I would I, I don't think it's I think it's obvious that like this season wasn't like last year. Like last year, for the most part, a lot of things went the Chiefs' way, right? Like from a health standpoint, the people around him, for the most part, were healthy. You had the Kareem Hunt thing, but other than that, like it was pretty much you know smooth sailing through the year. This year, offensive line ish injuries. Tyree Kill had an injury. He had an injury himself. Um, so I guess it was sort of a different path they took to get there. Like, what do you think we'll remember most over about the last month of Patrick Mahomes? Yeah, I think the thing would, for me would be this, Albert. A lot of times we hear, you know, no moment is too big and um, unflappable. And I think we could say that about him, I guess. But like for me for rare athletes, for guys that we admire, I certainly admire and, and, and just can't get enough of, these guys go to the big moment and they match the moment. And I think that's what we saw to Mahomes this, this, this playoff run of this year was every time the moment was big, he matched the moment. It wasn't like the like he brought his energy level, his focus level, his performance up. You know, and, and that's why I think these great athletes have this ability to go Here's this moment, and I crave it, and I thrive it, and I'm not just going to sit here and be unflappable in it. I actually go want to meet it at its at its point, and, and let's go have fun in it. And I just I think that those guys that are unafraid to go match the moment and match how big something is have this just really special quality in them that we all sit there and go, I can't understand how you are able to do that because I can't. Cause it's almost like, like you talk about like being in your element, like that is his element then, <laughs> you know, like being on that big stage. He's, he's best. He's at his best when he, when it's needed. It's the competitive greatness. I kind of referenced to it the other day of it's like an injured cornered animal when they have no other options than to go into attack mode. And like that's what happens when he goes down 24 down 10 or down 10 with seven minutes or six minutes to go. Like, there's no other option but to attack. And um, you know, we've seen for a, a hundred years, we've seen athletes just crumble in those moments. And we've seen guys be okay in those moments. And then we've been fortunate enough to see these rare guys that go, this is exactly where I want to be. Okay, so I do want to ask you a big picture question here. And it's, gonna, it's got sort of two parts to it. A, what do you think? And, and look, it's not like the guy was a fourth round pick, right? Like he was a tenth overall pick. But I, but I, there's no question. If you if you went back and redrafted, he'd be the first overall pick. Um, so a, what do you think teams might have missed on Mahomes coming out? And b, will watching him the last couple of years change anything about the way that you look at quarterbacks? Okay, so one, it's it's like it, it's for recency mindset. It's the Joe Judge comment. Don't tell me who's new Giants head coach. Don't tell me what a player can't do. Show me what he can do. And I think what everybody missed on Patrick Mahomes was um, they got so consumed with the things that he didn't do that they didn't see the things that he can do. They oh he's got bad footwork or you know he throws off his back foot a lot or played against it played in a conference where there's no defense and it's like you're telling me all these negatives and no one outside of the Chiefs and maybe some other Chiefs that I'm ranked like no one was able to go like. Wait, this kid can throw from every arm angle. Wait, this kid's got an absolute howler thrown arm. Wait, he knows when he needs to drive a football and then when he needs to take something off it. He's got a great anticipation. Man, this kid's really smart. 
wow, this in, intangible leadership that he has is outstanding. And so we all, not all, but everybody's scouting that spot. And, and that year, you know, he got consumed with the things that he did not do well, that they just overlooked the things that he does that you just cannot coach into a player. So that, that was the big miss there. And he's absolutely – I think the last three years have changed the way that we're going to evaluate quarterbacks because for a long time – you've been covering the NFL for a while. For a long time, um, it's been, you know, these quarterbacks that come from these spread air raid systems, they don't necessarily work out. They don't transition to the NFL. Well, three years ago, Nick Foles, who played in the air raid system in college football, won the Super Bowl. And last year, Jared Goff, who played in the air raid system and, and had a bunch of starts, um, went to the Super Bowl. And this year, Patrick Mahomes, who played in the air raid and had a bunch of college starts, wins the Super Bowl. And I, I think that what we're going to see is these different quarterbacks, you know, we're going to break the taboo of, uh, is he pro ready? Or does he transition well to the NFL? Um, I think they're going to look at these guys and go, man, they got a ton of really good reps throwing the football scene, a bunch of different defenses and color and windows and anticipation and matchups. And they're going to be much what used to be a uh, look as a disqualifier will now be looked at as, as a uh, an advantage. And part of it too is like the NFL is more more willing now than ever to meet these guys halfway, right? Like it's like I'm going to do some things to accommodate you rather than forcing you to come in here and do everything the way I've always done it. Yeah, it's no longer the question should not be, hey, does he fit our scheme? The question is, okay, here's X player. Are we good enough? to make sure that we fit our scheme around him. Absolutely. Okay, last thing I want to ask you, because I do want to hit the other team here. Um, was there anything about Jimmy's performance on Sunday that changes the way that you look at him as a quarterback? Um, well, of course. You know, I mean, the, the, the final two or three possessions, the, you can't run from that. When, when Jimmy G needed to be at his absolute best, it's the reverse of Patrick. You know, when he needed – to be on the money, he wasn't. There's three plays that are dialed up. The second and five that everyone's killing Colin Shanahan incorrectly over. The third and five, the very next play, Kittle's wide open. It's a great play design call by Kyle. And then the shot to Emmanuel Sanders. And, uh, you know, money, you know, the money situation, the got to have a situation, Jimmy G did not come through. Now, at the end of the day, it's his first year fully starting as, as a starting quarterback in the NFL. And he's top five in a bunch of different passing categories and led this team to a 13 and three record. So, I'm 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 far from being willing willing to, you know, crush Jimmy Garoppolo. But when that situation presents itself, as I think it will for him and that team, he will have to answer that question and and in the biggest moment, at the biggest stage, you know, show up and and play well. You know, I, all right. So like, here's what I the one thing I sort of had in my head here was, you know, you look at McVay and all he's done to kind of support the quarterback. And you look at the things that Kyle does to support the quarterback. I, is there an element of hand-holding there? Is there an element of when things aren't going well, maybe it's harder for those guys because things are so set up in that offense for the quarterback? Hey, you go here, you do this. Because um, it, 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 it kind of struck me, Dan, how when they got into a drop-back game or when they had to p play more of a drop-back game and less was based off of option, off of, off of, off of play-action, like all the stuff that they do with the boots and everything else, it seemed like Jimmy felt a little less comfortable back there. So like, is there is there an element there of with all the play-action stuff they do and everything else where 
maybe they're holding the quarterback's hand so much that when things don't go right and when the team falls behind and when they need to play the position a little bit different, they're not capable of it. I don't know. I'm just sort of like I'm workshopping that idea in my head. You know, do you think that exists? Yeah, I don't think it's an unfair thought process or unfair comment. Um, but here's the reality. So, so everyone understands, like, when you're utilizing that version of the play action where you're going to get so many – one, the pocket is more often cleaner. Two, because they move the pocket in their play action, whether it's the, the outside zone bootleg or the outside zone setup, the vision is easier. The pocket is expanded. I try to tell people it's like an accordion, right? When, when you go with that wide zone – play fake oftentimes um you know the before the snap the tackles from tackle to tackle it's probably i don't know six or seven yards wide and then when you go post snap the, the pocket is expanded so much it's probably 13 14 yards wide and so it's way easier for a quarterback to see so that's number two three a lot of times in the play action pass quarterbacks don't know the coverage before the snap because we're about to turn our back to the cover to, to the defense and it can change. So a lot of times it's just a progression-based thing of seeing one person. Okay, you see the free safety. If he does this, this is one, two, and three. If he doesn't do this, it's one, two, and three. You, it is, is it, it is in, in many ways easier to operate. Um, when that's taken away, one, you no longer, if you're going to play the drop-back game, one, the pocket is smaller. It's tighter. It's more condensed. And so you don't see as well. It's not easy as easy to see. Two, you do have to see coverage more often than not because a lot of times the drop-back game is not a full progression, one, two, three, four, no matter what the defense is. So you have to see man zone, rotation, safety goes here, safety went there. Is it inside leverage, outside leverage? And so it is a little bit more difficult to play the drop-back game when you're so accustomed to the play-action game. And it's so interesting, too, because I don't think – I don't know. I think when Jimmy first got to San Francisco, you saw him moving a little bit better in the drop back game like moving within the pocket a little bit better and it felt like and maybe this is a product of what the Chiefs were doing too like he was standing still a lot when they were in drop back situations and maybe he's a little less comfortable in drop back situations now than he used to be because they do so much off of play action yeah I mean it's it's the give and take right he's he's probably a lot more comfortable on the run and in their movement game than he was when he got there and that's, that's everything is tied together. Their run game is not what it is without the movement game and vice versa. Um, I, I, you know, and, and he's probably a little bit less because of the, I know how they practice. I've been in that system and, and a little bit, uh, a little bit less, but I still think he's a really efficient pocket guy. And I think this, Albert, like the reality is this before that second and five throw, Jimmy Garoppolo was 18 of 21. Yeah. You know, like playing really good. And he's a batted ball away from probably winning the Super Bowl. So I don't want to make, like, too much of it. Again, he needed to play better down the stretch than he did. Um, But if not for the batted ball, you know, we could be having a very different conversation. And it's a reality. I get that. But um, I I still think uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of good in in Jimmy Garoppolo's player. All right, he's Dan Orlovsky. You can catch him on Get Up on ESPN, a bunch of other ESPN shows. You can get him on Twitter at Dan Orlovsky7. Always appreciate you coming out, bud. You got it, bud. Take care. All right, appreciate Dan coming out. He's always awesome talking about quarterbacks in specific in the NFL in general. We'll have him again before the draft at some point 
talk about Joe Burrow, Tua Tagovailoa, all the guys that we mentioned off the top. Um, but now I want to jump into our six pack. And you guys know the last few weeks this has been a little different. We are going to eventually go back to doing the mailbag the way that we wanted to do the mailbag all along, which is with your voicemails and with your emailed in questions. But because I've been on the road the last few weeks, we've had to adjust, which means going back and doing it old school. And so when we do it old school, you guys know how we do it. Those of you listen to us for a while, it's the six pack. We take, you put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit that little heart emoji and I give you an answer right here on the podcast. So we'll jump into those now. Question number one, this is from John Stager. This is, that's at Stags2. How are we going to improve the, improve the state of officiating? And I couldn't come down any harder than I will on this. You need to use the technology, period. I, I, I felt this way forever. The sky judges the answer. I think the play clock will govern um, the ability of the sky judge to interrupt the, the game too much. It's got to be something obvious if he is going to step in. Um, and I think it would help the officials on the field too. And so what you do, you put an official up there, you give him some power to buzz down to the head official to stop the game if it needs to be stopped, to drop a flag, pick up a flag, whatever it is. There is no reason why all of us at home should have the advantage of crystal clear HD, 12, 13 different angles, replay, all of that. There's no reason why me and you should have that advantage and the people who are officiating the game don't. So use technology properly. I think the way to use technology properly is via a sky judge. I also think that they really have to evaluate Al River on this offseason. It felt to me a lot like the way that pass interference was officiated last year, the way that the review process was handled, was the officials pushing back against the coaches for organizing to have it put in in the first place. And that means the relationship between the officials and the coaches right now is a little sideways. Job number one for somebody in Al Riveron's position is to make sure that that relationship between the coaches and the officials is in a good place. And I don't think that it is right now. Question number two is from LWB. That's at Sab Nab Dab. What's it going to take to re-sign Tom Brady, money or new players? I'll go back to last summer. The reason that Tom Brady's situation went haywire last summer was because of years, not money. I believe what Brady wanted last summer was a deal that would take him to retirement, a deal that would ensure that he was going to finish his career with the Patriots, a deal that would be fair but wouldn't be out of control, a deal that would basically signal to him, like, we want you here until you are comfortable finishing playing. And I think Brady even would have gone so far as to put an end date on his career if that's what it took to make sure of that. Instead, he got a one-year bump, and he had to hear about how the Patriots were uncomfortable going into quote-unquote uncharted territory. Now, it's easy for me and you to sit here and say, that makes sense, that's logical. Why would they, that, that they would be a little nervous about going into uncharted territory. But if that's you, and you've got 20 years in the bank, and you've built all that equity up in the, in the franchise, and you're literally responsible for changing the value of the team, wouldn't you sit there and say, what the hell are you talking about, uncharted territory? I put you in this territory. I put you here in the first place. So that's the thing that I think they've got to get past right now. I think it's about respect more than it's about money. I, I think it's going to wind up again uh, being about, hey, we want to make you our quarterback for the next two years, whatever it is. And let's come up with something reasonable that makes sense. We can still build our team, but also shows you the proper respect. 
the ability of the Patriots to take a discount was severely damaged because they sent him into a contract year and made him play it out. And that's the same as it is for any player. When you are, when you do a deal early, when a, when a team does a deal early for a player, they are in essence buying those years back. They are taking the, they are incurring the injury risk. They're taking the injury risk off the player's shoulders. When a player plays his contract out, he is taking on the injury risk, which means he's going to be less willing to take less. And so I think there's some fence mending that needs to go on there. I think this is going to be about showing Brady the proper respect and starting to formulate a plan for, okay, this is when I'll be done. Question number three, that's from Prashant. That's at cool ass puppy. What is the likelihood of a dramatic change in NFL broadcast rights? Do you think we will see more non-network partners broadcast slash stream games? Do you think DirecTV will give up Sunday ticket to an OTT streamer like Apple or Amazon? If so, who do you think has the inside track? Prashant, I think it's certainly possible that uh, the Sunday ticket is on more than one provider um, because I do think that they're going to want to set that up to perhaps have a pay-per-view model down the road. And so I think making the making the most games available and maybe there will be different levels of the package, making the most games available, um, I think is going to be not only profitable for them um, by going to a wider audience, but also a good test for where things are going going forward and something that I think can kind of help paint the landscape. Um, you know, I, I would have told you three or four years ago that I thought the, the, the Googles and the Amazons and the Netflix were going to compete for rights with the networks. I'm not sure that we're at the point right now where the league would be comfortable doing that because I, I know that they really care about scale and I know that they really care about their raw numbers of people that are watching their games. And so I don't know that it's we're, we're ready for that quite yet. Um, what I would say is that I do think that there's uh, parallel tracks where they can make it lucrative. And, um, you know, I, I like I just I, like obviously streaming is going to have a big piece of this. And so, again, I, I wonder if the exclusivity kind of gets divvied up here a little bit where maybe the Sunday tickets less exclusive. And then maybe we have parallel tracks with the network track and then the streaming track and, and they do separate deals on each side. Um, I'm going to be digging into that a little bit more over the next few weeks, but that's just my initial thought on it. Question number four from just a working man. That's at just a working may four. Uh, what will it take for O'Brien to get fired at Houston? Just don't see him taking them to the top. He picked Savage over Watson and then went to Watson only when it was clear. Savage sucked, which we all knew. Uh, all right. First of all, just a working man. I, I believe Savage was in the lineup for one, for, for one half of one game. Watson got in the lineup, played really well. And that was it. So it wasn't like he was going to sit Deshaun Watson for an extended period of time. Like Watson was going to find his way into the lineup. He was just doing what a lot of coaches do, which is let's play it safe with our rookie quarterback for the good of his development. Let's let him sit and learn. And then I think Watson went out there and proved he didn't really need it. So it's hard to fault him for that. The other piece of your thing, look, I think a lot of people are sort of looking at this and saying, well, you know, this is a, a power grab. And, and to some degree, I think we've seen a little bit of that from O'Brien. What I would tell you here, though, is getting the general manager title, I think, is almost a way of saying, okay, now this is on you. Now you're going to be accountable for this. Now, whatever happens, I'm judging you in both roles. And I'm talking about this being sort of the owner's voice that, you know, from now on, anything that happens in Houston on football ops, Bill O'Brien not only has his fingerprints on, but is responsible for. 
And so now I think you go forward with Jack Easterby as the EVP of football operations, which is bananas because that's actually what Tom Coughlin's title was in Jacksonville. So you go home, go go to go. You go forward with Jack in that position, Billy in the other position. Both those guys are wholly responsible what hap- for what happens in football ops. That way, there's no more po- finger pointing. There's no more. It's this guy's fault. It's that guy's fault. Now the owner has a couple guys that he's holding responsible for everything. Question number five. From Shedrick Carter, that's at Shedrick Carter too. Likelihood the uh, the Falcons lose Austin Hooper to free agency. If so, where does he go? Good question, Shedrick. Um, I do think it's possible they lose him. Thomas Dimitrov came off and said, from a cap from a cap standpoint, it's going to be a little tricky for them to hang on to him if they franchise or, or to, to franchise tag him, um, just based on where they are from a cap standpoint. And so. Like if they don't tag him, and I think they probably should tag him and do what they need to do to tag him because it's hard to find good tight ends. Um, if he makes it to the market, I certainly think there's going to be a market out there for him. I think he'd be the clear number one guy. Hunter Henry also set to be a free agent, but he's got all the injury issues. Hooper's a lot cleaner of a player right now um, for other teams to look at, and so my guess is Austin Hooper does make it to the market. And I would look at some of the t- the teams that really value tight ends. Indianapolis really v- values tight ends. Uh, New England really values tight ends. Chicago really values tight ends. So I would look at those sorts of teams that put a lot of value in the tight end position and might be willing to pay the tight ends a tight end closer to what a receiver would make than what a tight end makes. Finally, question number six is from Brett Mauser. That's my old buddy from the Metro West Daily News at Sliced Brett. Do you see any scenario where the Redskins trade out of the two spot, either giving the team, either giving up the pick for a team to take Young, Tua, or even Herbert? I could be swayed by a King's ransom. All right, I'll answer this in two ways, Brett. Number one, I would not give up the chance to draft Chase Young if I were the Redskins. And what we saw on Sunday reinforces that. Having a bevy of good pass rushers, right? Like having more than one good pass rusher. It, it makes all the difference in the world. And I think if you look at what the Redskins have done, they're sort of, I mean, it's not totally, it's not totally the right, uh, it's not totally the, the, the a clean comparison, but if you look at where they are, um, where, with where the red, the Niners were a year ago, it's actually, you know, sort of similar. They have a ton of former first round picks in their defensive front. Ryan Kerrigan, of course, is older, but he's a former first-round pick who's been really good. Jonathan Allen, young first-round pick. Uh, Montez Sweat, young first-round pick. Deron Payne, young first-round pick. And so they've got a bunch of talent up front, and it's the same as the Niners did. The Niners had that talent with Eric Armstead and um, Eric Armstead and <clears throat> Solomon Thomas, and of course DeForest Buckner. And they traded for for D Ford. Then they drop Nick Bosa, and then the whole thing explodes. I think it could wind up being similar, just dropping Chase Young into there. As for getting value, I certainly think that you have to listen to teams. And if somebody's really willing to blow you away, then that's something else. And I think one of two things has to happen for that to happen. Number one, Joe Burrow somehow slips to two. Okay, so that if that somehow happens, then you know now all of a sudden I think you got a little bit of a feeding frenzy for the second pick. The other thing is related to it. It's one of the other quarterbacks gets hot. And so to uh, Justin Herbert, whoever it is, someone gets really, really hot. And now all of a sudden you've got a market for that second pick. But I don't think somebody's going to come up to get Young um, at the price it would take to go up and get the second overall pick. So I think you take Young, 
barring getting blown away by a ridiculous offer. And, and then that happening would require one of the quarterbacks getting really hot to the point where either the Bengals take him at one and Burrow slips to two, or the guy is seen like just universally as being the guy who should go second overall. Appreciate you guys coming out as always. Um, love your feedback. Want your feedback. We'll incorporate your feedback. You can get to me on social at Albert Breer on Twitter at Albert R Breer on Facebook at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. You guys have been great all year about getting me your feedback. Continue to get me your feedback on what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and we will incorporate it going forward. I want to thank all you guys too for coming out all year and interacting with us because that's what this show is all about. It's about interaction. We want to interact with you guys consistently. And that's the best way to kind of make yourself a part of the show, take ownership in the show, is to tell me what you want to hear on the show. Okay, and as always, I want you guys to listen to all the MMQB podcasts too, the Monday morning podcast, the Thursday podcast, the Weekside podcast with Connor and Jenny. We're all on one feed now, the MMQB NFL podcast. You can also get your bite-sized news. You guys know what that is. Um, if you've been at work all day, you haven't paid attention to what's going on in the NFL, you want to catch up in five minutes, we get you caught up on MMQB news. So both those feeds, the MMQB news feed, the MMQB NFL podcast, you can get them on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google play, Apple podcasts, wherever you get your shows. Same time next week. We'll see you guys then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. 
We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Bosch at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build.